Welcome to another edition of Heartland History, the podcast of the Midwestern History Association. I'm your host, John Lauk. Our show is produced by Aaron Babcock. Today, our guest is Mark Soderstrom. He is a professor of history at State University of New York, Empire State College. Mark is coming to us today from Syracuse, New York. Mark has deep roots in the Midwest, including a Ph.D. from the University of Minnesota. His dissertation at the University of Minnesota is going to be the topic of our discussion today. Welcome to the show, Mark. Thank you so much. Mark, why don't we begin with uh, your roots in the Midwest? Uh, Tell us how you came to be a Minnesotan. Uh, Well, I was born in Missouri to a family from Illinois and Iowa and moved to Minnesota when I was 18 um, and lived in Minnesota most of my adult life until I got a job in Wisconsin in 2004 and then a job in Syracuse, New York, 2005. Um, And I've been here in upstate New York um, ever since. And ironically, not that far away from the birthplace of some of the names at uh, the University of Minnesota that we will be talking about. Uh, Ah. William Falwell was born uh, not that far from where I live. Ah, great. So William uh, Falwell was the president of the University of Minnesota and the author, as I recall, of a four-volume history of the state of Minnesota. Is that right? (laughs) You know, I'd forgotten about the four-volume of State of Minnesota. I used to have an office in Falwell Hall, so I always think of him. He was the first president of the University of Minnesota. Right. No, I think, uh, as I recall, he wrote this massive multi-volume history of the state itself, um, which is very impressive given how busy university presidents are these days. Um, I'm not sure how he pulled that off. No idea either. Um, I think he, we, from my time in the archives and the letters, there was a there was a different culture for better and for worse. <laughs> well, let's talk about your time in the archives. Um, you uh, went to college at Metro State there in the Twin Cities of Minnesota, and then went on to earn a master's and PhD at the University of Minnesota in history. And you decided to write a dissertation about um, what was going on at the University of Minnesota back in the teens and 20s and 30s. Tell us how this project began and tell us how it unfolded. Well, when I was in school at Metropolitan State University, I was interested in local labor history. Um, And I was interviewing uh, local labor activists and I'd anticipated going on uh, as a labor historian. Um, I interviewed a man named Reginald Harris, who had been part of uh, the formation of the Brotherhood of Red Caps and a dining car worker, worked uh, with Pullman porters out of St. Paul, and found he had been uh, a student activist, as well as a member of Meridel Lesseur's writing group at the same time, when he studied writing at the University of Minnesota and was a founding member of the Negro Students Council, um, which fascinated me. So I went in, that's what drew me into the university archives, where I found that what Reginald Harris had been organizing against uh, was segregated housing at the University of Minnesota. 
and I began to read the president's papers, um, and what was extremely confusing, um, extremely confusing letters back and forth. It, it's the, the, the amazing thing of the archives is trying to understand what's preserved and why, um, and to understand it in its context. And I sat on those letters for a number of years until I think I was working in, in graduate school with David Noble and David Rodiger and Hy Berman, and I felt like I began to develop enough of an idea uh, to begin to work on them, and slowly I moved from being a labor historian uh, to working on uh, Midwestern culture and sort of a Midwestern intellectual history of the University of Minnesota. What do you think, um, what do you think about the previous work uh, that had been done on the history of the University of Minnesota, if indeed there had been much work on this before. I mean, were you the first to use some of these letters? Oh, I, I believe I was the first to use these letters because these are not these are not always very complimentary letters towards the University of Minnesota. Uh, James Gray and some of the other early historians wrote um, wrote throw wide the door. Um, was an early work. Um, there was another history of the University of Minnesota. These were primarily hagiography <sighs> comes to mind. Um, but, you know, the, the University of Minnesota did, you know, did great work. Um, and these were very, very praising pieces of work that, that almost served as, as promotional materials. Um, they did not talk about segregated facilities. They did not talk about um, some of the darker aspects of the university during World War One or during World War II. Um, and so in, in large part, uh, I believe I was some one of the first to get into uh, at least publishing the president's letters around the issue of housing segregation. And some of the boxes, I'm sure I was the first person since the box was closed from just the mold colonies that, it, that came <laughs> forth when I opened them. <laughs> yes, I've, I have been there where I cut, up, cut open the tape from 1925. It's always a very uh, exciting uh, experience. Uh, let me, let's go back to this uh, book you mentioned by Gray, this history of the University of Minnesota, Throw Wide Open the Door. Um, I mean, that gives the sense that the University of Minnesota had been, um, historically speaking, or was viewed as a fairly open institution. Um, is, it, is it the case that African Americans were always uh, allowed to attend the University of Minnesota? It's, it appears that, and this is, the, this is the struggle of the archive, open wide the door by James Gray. It's a shorter version of his University of Minnesota, 1851 to 1951. Um, it does appear that there have been African-American students at the University of Minnesota at least back to the 1880s. Um, Earl Spangler wrote a history of African-Americans in Minnesota, and I believe he talks about African-Americans at the U as early as 1881. Um, 
And, and that is to Minnesota's credit. Um, we were one of the schools that uh, Southern schools would send graduate students to because they wouldn't have they didn't have graduate programs and they maintained segregated teaching facilities. Um, and so I don't want to, you know, I am I am critical of the University of Minnesota, but but there is still there are still things to to support and praise. However, what I found as I began to look through the president's papers was a very different story about the social spaces of the university. Um, and there the university pursued a rigorous practice that they carefully say is not policy, uh, but a rigorous practice in terms of segregation. Um, and and I think it, it, it's key, this, this was the tension to try to understand as an intellectual historian of how what in the minds of these administrators made this make so much sense when from a perspective of reading this in the in the 1990s or the 2000s or the 2010s it just seems wildly contradictory well let's talk about the social spaces uh that that you examine in your dissertation and uh, let's become a little bit more specific so at the University of Minnesota, if you were a student, say, in 1910, where exactly did you live? What was the housing situation for students? 1910 is about the time that Sanford Hall will open up for women. So there, is, there will be women's dormitories. But in 1910, most of the housing is going to be in off-campus rooming houses that are approved by the university administration, um, inspected and approved, or, or in your own home or some other private accommodation. The university dreams, the administration dreams for a very long time, it's a goal of theirs, to be able to build a dormitory for men. Um, and they finally achieved that. They built that dormitory in 19 and opened it in 1931 called Pioneer Hall. So just so I'm clear, Mark, prior to 1930 or so, at a large state university such as the University of Minnesota, there weren't student dormitories. Most of the students lived off campus in private housing. Is that right? Yes. Uh, approved rooming houses rooming houses that the, that the university oversees, but approved, but yes, private houses run by individual landlords uh, for all the male students until they open the dormitory in 1931. Uh, this is also the case at the University of Wisconsin, um, where there are rooming houses up and down uh, along Lake Mendota, uh, Langdon Avenue there, if I remember the road correctly. It's not entirely uncommon. Um, the university is, a, is smaller than what we think of today and, and somewhat more exclusive. How many students would have been at the University of Minnesota in 1930 or so? In 1930, I believe it's about 14,000. The university is, has grown significantly. One of the other things that uh, struck me from your dissertation, and uh, this was fairly early on in your dissertation, and I had not realized this or thought much about it, but I think you say 
in about 1925 or so, uh, a few years before the first dormitory opened for uh, male students at the University of Minnesota, you say that there were four uh, African-American fraternities and one African-American sorority. What, what can you tell us about those? You know, this again is, 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 the, is, the, is the frustration of the archive. Um, other than their names, I, the, archive, the archive didn't tell me very much about them. I don't know if they were uh, association fraternities, which is my suspicion, um, or if they were actually if they actually had any residence, which I don't think so. I think they are um, I think they were associational fraternities, but but this wasn't information that I could find at the time. Um, you know, uh, more of a fraternity like Phi Kappa Phi, something you join and you you have an association with, but it's not a place where you live like fraternity row. Um, but I'm, I hope that someone else will, will do that work and that I will be able to read their dissertation and they can tell me. We are talking today with Mark Soderstrom. He is a professor of history at State University of New York, Empire State College. He is coming to us today from Syracuse, New York. We are discussing his dissertation, uh, which was completed at the University of Minnesota a few years ago, which has been uh, the inspiration for a new exhibit at the University of Minnesota in the Elmer Anderson Library, uh, which will be open through the end of November. The exhibit is entitled Campus Divided, and one of the aspects of the exhibit focuses on the handling of African-American housing at the University of Minnesota in the early 20th century. Mark, let's go back to the opening of the very first um, residence hall at the University of Minnesota. You mentioned it was named Pioneer Hall and opened in 1931. I can remember driving by it when I lived in the Twin Cities. Um, Tell us about the opening of that hall and how exactly it was that the administration handled the... um, the question of whether African-Americans could or should live in Pioneer Hall? Well, uh, it is the opening of the first men's residence, and and we are talking about sexist administrations at the time. The men's residence was was more important to to people like Kaufman and Nicholson, really, than, than Sanborn Hall, which was a women's residency, which had been open for a number of years before. But the men's residence was really their jewel. Um, and it remains a beautiful building. Um, and I think the, the important thing to remember is, is the name. Right? It is Pioneer Hall. Um, and it really, from the administration's viewpoint, the, the pioneer is the figure of the ideal Midwestern citizen. And the pioneer, from the administration's viewpoint, is raced, right? The, the pioneer is always thought of by the administration as white. Um, and they want virtuous pioneers on, on the new prairie that the university is creating, the, the modern Minnesota, um, such that a young assistant professor who will later write a, 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 an amazing history of Minnesota, Theodore Blagan, 
is assigned the task of researching every pioneer's name because each room is going to be named after a particular pioneer. Young Theodore Blagan has to go through and make sure that each pioneer is appropriately virtuous, um, that there can be no taint um, with, the, with the rooms named after these pioneers. Um, the administration sees this not just as a place where students are going to eat sleep, uh, they really see the dormitory as a unique opportunity for a kind of social pedagogy, a social teaching. Uh, Pioneer Hall is, is envisioned as a citizen factory. They're going to create the ideal citizen in Pioneer Hall. They, they set up a complex guidance system in which uh, there are guidance counselors who aren't there to tell you what to do as a resident, but they're there to talk with you and, and to get you to convince yourself to do the right thing. Um, they're there to, to create that ideal Republican vision of the self-controlled virtuous citizen. Uh, down to the level of they are there to, to teach you how to save your money to date. Um, they're specifically there to teach you to date the right kind of girl. Uh, and, uh, and to warn you if you're, if you're dating, dating a floozy. Um, they, they're here, they really are here to create, to create an ideal sort of middle-class householder, um, the, the ideal citizen for the future state of Minnesota. Um, so the social space is, the importance of the social space is really um, not to be underestimated. Uh, they also organize dances between um, the nurses who, until 1933, live in hospital rooms um, until the formation of Powell Hall, which is a nursing dormitory. And they coordinate dances for with the women's dormitory um, to teach young men how to associate with men in the dormitory and how to associate with women in social functions. And the university administration fervently believes that this kind of inculcation of Republican virtue requires a homogenous space. Uh, I studied with David Noble, so I was used to thinking about the sort of sacred space of the nation. And for the administration, when David Noble talks about a sacred space of the nation, they really believe that it should be pure and that it should be that homogeneity is necessary for harmony. Um, and they think the inclusion of African-American students will destroy this potential of, of, of the social lessons that they want to teach. And they have no idea that African-Americans are actually going to want to live in the dorm. It's not even, it, there's no, there is no blank for race on the dormitory application the first year that the application goes out. The second year, there is. Um, and so they are in a, they're in a, they're in a tricky position when John Pinkett Jr., an out-of-state student from Washington, D.C., is actually set to live in Pioneer Hall on, the, on its opening day. Um, and that sets off an 11-year struggle to try to integrate university facilities. Let's talk about uh, John Pinkett Jr. Um, very, very interesting story. And uh, from your dissertation, you talked about talked a little bit about the backstory uh, of Pinkett's um, 
decision, or I should say the decision of his parents and, and, and some of the people that his parents were uh, connected to um, about their decision to send him to the University of Minnesota. Can you explain the backstory on that? Well, it's again, um, it's, it's, it's a wonderful historical problem uh, because everybody has a different view on, on, on John Pinkett Jr. Uh, Kaufman's, Kaufman gets a protest letter from John Pinkett's father. Let, just Kaufman so, gets, Mark, just to interject oh, here for our listeners, uh, when we talk about Kaufman, uh, Kaufman is uh, Lotus Kaufman, who is the president of the University of Mon- Minnesota during these years. Yes. And um, we're trying to sort out a little bit about the background of Pinkett's decision to matriculate at the University of Minnesota. Yes, when you spend so many years with these people, they become they become sort of present in your mind. Um, <laughs> Lotus Delta Kaufman, I always loved his name. Um, I, I, I wonder about his parents, but um, Kaufman is is faced with uh, the choice of what to do with an African American student student who's moving into. Uh, what really had been a, a dream project for for Kaufman, the president of, of Minnesota, um, and and we get various we get different different twists on the story depending on which letter we read, um, and depending on which of the two letters Kauf, of Kaufman's we read, it was one of the most enlightening aspects that Kaufman actually saved his draft letter um, that addressed this situation. Um, Ello Smith was Lena Smith, who was one of the first African-American women lawyers, I believe the first in the state of Minnesota. Um, And she was the head of the NAACP after Pinkett is, is expelled from Pioneer Hall she writes a letter to President Kaufman, and John Pinkett's father also writes a letter to Kaufman protesting this, this administration's decision. Um, and Kaufman writes a draft letter and then edit it, edits it in colored pencil and then has a finished letter to Ello to Smith addressing, addressing the, the controversy. Um, in the draft letter, it's clear that Kaufman himself spoke to John Pinkett Jr. Personally, the president of the University of Minnesota came to meet a freshman in a dormitory room, and a single dormitory room. He wasn't going to be sharing. It wasn't a double. He would have been in the room alone. Um, and here is this young man with the president of the university coming in to talk to him directly. I can't imagine it. Um, According to Kaufman's draft letter, John Pinkett Jr. didn't want to live in the dormitories. He was being pressured to live in the dormitories, and he was very happy when Kaufman arranged for him to live somewhere else because he would have been, in Kaufman's words, alone with 250 white boys. Um, Now, if you've ever lived in a dormitory, I don't know how anybody's alone. Um, But... uh, the other letters make no mention that that there was any pressure on Pinkett. This one, you know, they make no 
suggestion that he was an outside agitator, uh, which is a common accusation. Um, and instead, um, about the fact that he slept in that room that night and woke up to find that his luggage had already been moved to the Phyllis Wheatley house where he was moved the next day. Um, and this then sets in motion um, a decade-long struggle between student organizations and, and the NAACP and the Ermid League and the St. Paul Recorder and the Minneapolis Spokesman um, around the issue of segregated facilities at the University of Minnesota. And this isn't the first. Uh, in 1929, there had been a rejection of a nursing student at the University of Minnesota, and they write a letter. Uh, Homer Smith from Minneapolis, an African-American, writes a letter protesting again to Kaufman. And Elias Lyon, the dean of the med school, writes a letter for Kaufman to send, uh, justifying the rejection of an African-American nursing student on the grounds that uh, if a student were to come to the University of Minnesota and wanted to study orange culture, we would have to say we have no orange groves. Um, likewise, we have no black hospitals here. So she should go to Chicago or somewhere where she can work on members of her own race. Um, so the social space, uh, the social space is the dormitory space, um, the places where you might uh, meet your potential marriage partner, the places where you learn what socialization is but also um, intimate space, body intimate space, uh, nursing practice. And the University of Minnesota does educate uh, African-American education students in teaching, but they don't, those African-American students are not allowed to do student teaching because there are not black only classrooms in Minnesota. So it's a very complicated system that the administration holds as a natural common sense in their minds about who belongs where um, and, and, and what the natural hierarchy is, uh, who belongs where up and down and who belongs where horizontally in space. Uh, and the administration have a very naturalized map that makes perfect sense to them and they don't really have, they, they don't think about these things critically, this kind of racism uh, is grounded in in common in their common sense. Uh, it is a common sense that the Urban League, the NAACP, the Spokesman, the Recorder, various student groups don't share, and the administration don't seem to understand why why it isn't just self evident to everyone their decisions. We are talking today with historian Mark Soderstrom about his dissertation about African Americans and the housing policies of the University of Minnesota in the years prior to World War II. I just wanted to point out for our listeners that there is also an exhibit at the University of Illinois that is currently going on. It was open this spring called the African-American Student Experience at Illinois, the Early Years, which deals with many of the same issues. And I also wanted to point out a recent book published by the University of Iowa Press entitled Invisible Hawkeyes, African-Americans at the University of Iowa during the long civil rights era. And this collection is edited by Lena Hill and Michael Hill. 
Uh, back to Mark here for a second. Um, I wanted to follow up a little bit on uh, John Pinkett Jr. I seem to recall a reference in your dissertation, although it could have been in the exhibit that uh, that stems from your dissertation now running at the University of Minnesota. I can't remember exactly when, but I seem to recall some discussion of John Pinkett's father being involved in, I think, the NAACP and sending his son to University of Minnesota to sort of test these policies and to figure out exactly what they were. And you had mentioned this letter um, that President Kaufman wrote in which he talked about Pinkett saying he was pressured to live in the dorm. Uh, can you clarify that a little bit for our listeners? I, I think that's a really open question in the archives. Unless somebody has found documents since my search, and I felt like I lived several years in Anderson Library looking at this stuff, um, John Pinkett Sr. is, I believe, involved in the NAACP in Washington, D.C., which is an important site. Um, uh, Washington, D.C. had been a pretty integrated town. The federal bureaucracy had, had been multiracial until the election of Woodrow Wilson, who, um, on the one hand, was the president of uh, Princeton, but really uh, came from Virginia and was a, was a, was a Southerner. Um, and he resegregated the federal bureaucracy and segregated the lunchroom of the Supreme Court, for example. Uh, so there were a lot of active struggles in fairly recent memory um, in, in the African-American community in Washington, D.C. It is certainly repeated by the administration, just about everyone who questions their idea of where the races belong, um, they are often questioned as outside agitators and somehow not, not, um, not, not adjusting to the ideal pioneer order that they have in mind. Um, but I do not recall, and, and, I, and, and again, it's the archive, so I just may not have seen uh, a document that nails down for sure that John Pinkett Jr. was indeed um, acting on behalf of a, of a larger organization. Uh, the letter from President Kaufman uh, to the NAACP and the other attorneys explaining what the University of Minnesota is doing with regard to the Pinkett case, uh, in that letter he, he emphasizes that uh, the University of Minnesota does not discriminate. We have no policies on uh, racial discrimination. But he couches everything in this, in this language of common sense, uh, which you referenced a few moments ago. And this is one of the things that you talk about at length in your dissertation. Can you talk a little bit about Kaufman's rationale for his decision-making on this matter? Yes, I, I really think that my dissertation is about trying to explore common, what common sense is um, uh, and to try to understand exactly how these people really believe what they're saying. Um, Kaufman's not an, you know, Kaufman is not an evil man. Uh, he's doing these things, uh, and that's what makes it interesting. Why do people who do good things, who are, are good people fundamentally, do bad things? I think is the interesting historical problem. 
bad people doing bad things is a very simple historical problem. Um, in, in part, he really believes putting people in their appropriate place isn't discriminatory. Um, that, that he really believes, uh, and in several places says, that keeping African-American students out of social spaces is not discrimination, it is not prejudice. Uh, and he specifically says this is not prejudice, it prevents the rise of prejudice. Uh, operating before World War II, we have a, an idea that prejudice arises because of contact. That the way to prevent white people becoming anti-black prejudiced is by not having them meet black people. Um, if you keep the races apart, prejudice will not occur in the estimation of these administrators. This is part of their sort of natural harmony of the nation. Um, after World War II, we, we completely toss that out and we, we recreate a new sociological idea of the contact thesis that the way to prevent the rise of prejudice is by actually having, uh, having interracial neighborhoods, by, by having interracial communities, by having interracial mixers, people meet each other and realize that they're everybody's people and that, and that prevents the rise of prejudice. Uh, but the administration's working under a very different idea. Um, and I think it, it's, it's insidious. Um, and it really, it really boils down to, I think, by 1942, they are housing African-American students in International House, while white male students are housed in Pioneer Hall. And I think that that the naming there, the, the, the tension of that naming, Pioneer International, is really a clue as to what these administrators are thinking. Uh, white men are to be pioneers. They're to be molded as citizens in a homogenous and harmonious uh, environment that guides them to a kind of self-realization. Uh, African-Americans are to live in international house where there are no white students and no international students. They close it when they find Japanese-Americans living in international house. Um, because African-Americans might live in the state, but in the eyes of the administration, they're not really citizens. They're not pioneers. Um, and I think that, that, that is just such a deep common sense to these administrators that they just don't, they don't see another, they don't see another model of the United States like the student protesters do who see a multiracial, a participatory democracy uh, that is more vibrant and potentially less harmonious and more messy, uh, but to me a much more interesting place to live than the sort of staid white republic that the administration would re is really has in their mind. Um, One of the things about the letter that uh, sort of comes through too, I think, Mark, is um, it's not stated explicitly, but there is a kind of nervousness that you can detect about the law and whether or not they're doing something that might be illegal. Um, the president uh, notes a few times that the Constitution of Minnesota and Minnesota statutes uh, prevent 
racial discrimination in housing. And they seem to be sort of tiptoeing around that, aware that they could potentially uh, be in hot water uh, legally. And of course, they are dealing with uh, with lawyers in terms of the NAACP and, and the other people you mentioned. So I think that's one of the interesting tensions in the correspondence, too. Well, in the in the Reconstruction period in Minnesota, there's this, the, the 1885 statute goes back to the to a, a very clear statement that there will not be racial discrimination in accommodations in the state of Minnesota, um, and and it, it's quite clear. However, um, and so there is a certain nervousness uh, that that goes on in this letter. Um, you know, and and Kaufman Kaufman makes some very strange motions that African Americans have always been welcome, and they come to the Mother's Day hosted by Mrs. Kaufman. Um, it's just so strange, so something you're going to just write in a letter to someone. Um, but on the other hand, they really until until 1942, when they talk to a, when one of the regents talks to a judge at Cornell. They really do believe that this sort of common sense separation of the races is 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 not is not discriminatory and will not be found in violation of the law. The administration, you know, but but and in 1942, the table has turned. They're suddenly getting uh, a many many more protest letters when they when they set up a segregated house. Um, Suddenly, that attracts more attention than when they don't allow African Americans into the white-only dormitory. Um, and World War II, we've started. We've started. We've, we've become involved in World War II. There's a new. There's a changing mindset in the early 40s. And one of my favorite letters is from the Chicago Negro History Club, um, and they write a letter to President Coffey at the time, protesting internet, an international house is a democratic house. A segregated house is a Hitler house. Don't be a Hitler, be an American. <laughs> um, and suddenly this idea that, that the republic depends upon a kind of racial purity and a kind of segregation um, doesn't, doesn't hold much water anymore. Right. I think the historiography of the last 20 years uh, on the impact of World War II on race relations has been very impressive, and it obviously was a huge turning point. Um, I want to turn uh, back to these social spaces just for a second and ask you, um, beyond the dormitory, was there any evidence of discrimination or segregation, I should say, when it came to, for example, the student union or what or what classes could be attended or or sports. Um, I have read uh, a recent book on the University of Iowa and their efforts to integrate African-American players into sports programs, etc. And I'm just wondering what was going on at the same time at Minnesota. Oh, my. There's, there's, a, there's, there's several more dissertations there, <laughs> um, if any graduate students are, are listening. Um, there's work that needs to be done. There's anecdotal evidence that, um, particularly in basketball and in football, that Minnesota and other Big Ten teams benched their African-American players when they play below the Mason-Dixon line. 
Uh, I haven't seen anyone who's gone through and, and documented that carefully yet. Um, the origin of, of the pig that, that is exchanged between the Minnesota and Iowa football team, depending on which team wins every year, um, actually goes back to a racial incident where the Minnesota football team so battered the African-American Iowa running back that he had to be carried off the field in a stretcher. And the two governors recognized that this was racially motivated um, and, and set up sort of a, a meeting together and denounced, denounced racism. And that was, that was Floyd Benson. Um, as we mentioned before, uh, home economic, well, student teachers, there are no African-Americans who can go into student teaching. Uh, for quite some time, African-American nursing students are banned uh, because of the necessity of treating white patients and living in inter, what would be interracial housing by default in the hospitals. Um, the dormitory segregation, of course, um, and, and there was, there's, there's a, another instance and, and it just, it just fled my mind. Um, but yes, there's a, there's a good deal to show us that there are, there are difficulties in a lot of different kinds of social spaces. Um, in the early forties, uh, at this, this, I only found, I found the documents for just recently, uh, there's actually correspondence back and forth between the director of Kaufman Memorial Union and the director of the new student union at Cornell Willard Hall on on how what kinds of strategies do you have for limiting Jewish student participation? Um, they annoy the other students, and we'd like to try to limit them, particularly in the summertime. Um, and 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 I have I have those documents, and I and I'm, I'm still just just working through them, and even I am sort of agape at at them, and I haven't I haven't made sense of them entirely yet. But um, so there are there is indeed a, a, a deep system by which um, by which there's complicated layers of, of different kinds of social spaces that are segregated. Well, you meant- um, on the flip side, you have you know you have these wonderful student organizations that are that are experimenting, and uh, the Council of Negro Students. One of the first things they do is they accept a toboggan party from the American Students Union. Um, so you have students who are creating interracial socialized socialization spaces in sort of a direct antithesis to the what the administration thinks is best. Let's talk about your uh, theoretical orientation uh, when it came to the dissertation. I was reading through the first uh, couple of chapters, and it's uh, it's very much oriented toward uh, critical theory and Foucault and Derrida. Can you tell us about your decision-making when it came to theory and method uh, behind the dissertation? Well, now I've got to confess I avoid Derrida. I I, 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 I I do avoid Derrida, but Saussure and Foucault, um, I, I find I found Foucault to be immensely useful in approaching 
this the, the the larger project of trying to explore how people organize the episteme, their mentality, how how people organize this as a logical and sensible system in their mind. So so issues around uh, around language and language choices as they connect to material practice. Um, were, were very important to me, and and I think and those those aspects continue to really be important in in my work. Um, how do we uh, how do we construct ourselves? How do we recognize who we are in the world? Uh, part of that is the linguistic, the language that we use to describe ourselves. Part of it, and that intersects with the materiality of how our daily life is organized. Um, so to me, Foucault, Foucault made a great deal, a great deal of sense. And uh, the other, the other, some of the other pieces of this dissertation that we haven't mentioned is the ideological components and the practices of, of race science that support these segregation ideas in eugenics and uh, racialized medicine, racialized anthropology. Um, so, so Foucault, I think, was really was really sort of my my go-to um, theoretical underpinning here. Very good. We have been talking today with Mark Soderstrom, a professor of history at the State University of New York. Empire State College. We have been talking about his extensive research and work on race relations at the University of Minnesota in the early 20th century. Mark's dissertation was the inspiration for a new exhibit at Elmer Anderson Library uh, at the University of Minnesota. This exhibit is now being shown in the Atrium Gallery through the end of November. Uh, Mark, congratulations on all the work you've done, and congratulations on a very impressive dissertation, and thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much. It was an absolute pleasure. Thank you again for tuning in to Heartland History. If you would like more information about the Midwest History Association, visit us at midwesternhistory.com. You'll have access to information about memberships, news about upcoming conferences, calls for papers, and panel proposals related to Midwestern history. You might also be interested in subscribing to the print journal, Middle West Review, or reading our online journal, Studies in Midwestern History. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, and you can find us on Facebook. Until next time.